Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I got this new app on my phone. Maybe you have it too. Uh, it's called MyShake. Did you get a chance to download that one yet? It was developed for California by the University of Berkeley. And uh, it not only tells you about earthquakes that are happening all over the world, uh, it will tell you about one headed your way. Uh, by networking the motion sensors on users' stationary cell phones um, to detect the shaking, it can actually act as an early warning system for an earthquake where you are. Uh, whether or not you know, your MyShake warning will be uh, warning enough or soon enough, uh, it depends how close you are to the epicenter. But it also allows and encourages users to, users to report shaking and also any damage that results. Uh, it's a great idea if it works. Kind of out-of-the-box thinking, you know? But if your phone suddenly told you to, to drop, cover, and hold on, that there's been an earthquake and shaking is expected, would you even pay attention? Well, maybe, you know? I suppose if it actually saves some lives in the future, yeah, you might. I was in San Rafael during the uh, devastating Loma Prieta quake in uh, 1989 that took out part of the Bay Bridge and uh, caused some of the buildings to sink in, uh, in San Francisco's Marina District. Three-story buildings that were suddenly two-story buildings. I was sitting across a desk from a, another man when all of a sudden it felt like the whole building was going to come down around us. And uh, since I was the only one who could actually get under my desk, um, I, I didn't want to leave him to be crushed alone, and so we just both toughed it out. Or maybe that's kind of a, a guy thing. You know, he looked at me, and I looked at him, and the building's going like this, and, um, and we just uh, we would have been crushed. It would have been our fault, probably. Um, I guess an early warning system could have helped some people in a, in a quake that big if it had enough warning, but only if a person paid attention to it. And that's kind of what we're getting this morning. Jesus is giving us an early warning about destructive earthquakes that are headed our way to, uh, in the future. Um, but, you know, really, that's just the least of what's coming. There's going to be wars, uh, tumults, and terrifying disaster. Tumults are, uh, it comes from a word that's tied to a state of uh, violent uh, group disturbance and disorder, especially related to politics. Uh, disagreement, uh, insurrection maybe, uh, uh, maybe even impeachment hearings, you know. You can all go under that. Uh, Jesus is warning the disciples about the near end of the world as they know it. But he's also talking about the far future end of time. That'll be the end of the world as we know it. Um, the day he'll return on Judgment Day. And he uses this threat of impending disaster in Jerusalem to emphasize a point about God's continued control and care. Even during, as the old Chinese proverb says, uh, uh, if you live in, in interesting times, and I think we certainly do. The Lord and his disciples are leaving the temple in our lesson this morning, where Jesus has probably been teaching. The time is Holy Week, somewhere between uh, Palm Sunday and Jesus' triumphant entry, and the uh, following Friday when he'll be crucified. Uh, the temple in Jesus' day, like the original Temple of Solomon, was an imposing structure. And it would be ramped up and restored by Herod the Great, though, to be even bigger and better than the original. And it was an awesome sight. The smallest stones weighed two to three tons. Many of them weighed up to 50 tons, and, and some of the foundation stones were, were the size of boxcars. Uh, the walls towered 400 feet over Jerusalem in one part. Uh, it was grand and it was glorious, and it covered fully one-sixth of the, the uh, size of that ancient city. Historian Josephus wrote that the outward face of the temple wanted for nothing that was likely to surprise either men's eyes or their minds. 
for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first of the rising sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. You know, it makes you think of some of the uh, great cathedrals of the world that you may have visited. You walk inside and look around and just uh, jaw-dropping, right? The work which had begun in 20 B.C. continued until it was finally completed in 63 A.D. At the time of our lesson, it was still a work in progress. The temple building itself was, was done early, but the, uh, the outbuildings and the courts and all that stuff, the whole complex took fully 80 years, like 80 years to complete. 80 years. Now, if you want to put that into perspective, it's sort of like Caltrans adding a, a mile of carpool lane to a freeway these days, isn't it? It takes like uh, two generations to complete. Of course, Herod built it to gain favor with the Jews, but the resulting effort would have made it hard for even you or I to stand there, admiring it, all its glory, all its beauty, without thinking about it as a permanent tribute to God, a place you know, that might be worthy of his presence. To the first century Jew, it represented the seat of God's power and also their national identity. The temple was, was the bedrock of their faith and the one true God. And so Jesus answered to his disciples, ooing and eyeing over this, this magnificent house of God is, is really nothing less than shocking. He said, as far as these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another. You know, considering all the planning and the effort and the, the time and expense that had gone into this structure, not to mention its holy purpose. If anyone other than Jesus had predicted its demise, they would never have believed him. And the question started, well, when's it going to happen? What will the signs be? Uh, what hope is there for us in the face of such terrible times? And Jesus answers them in a way that will really uh, prepare them for whatever end may come, the, the temples, the worlds, or even their own. There will be those wars and tumults. Uh, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Roman army. Uh, people will be fainting with fear, and the heavens will shake. Uh, his followers will be persecuted for their faith in him. And then he offers them a word of assurance. He says, but not a hair of your head will perish. All that destruction. So what does that mean? Does that mean that no Christian would be injured? That they'd only be crushed from the, the shoulders down by falling buildings? Good news for me, maybe. But just kidding, the hair thing, right? No, disaster doesn't see faith. It doesn't discriminate. But faith sees disaster. And it recognizes that as a child of God, number one, we don't face our troubles alone. And number two, even death can't overcome a believer. In fact, it's already been overcome by belief. A warning now, gospel spoiler coming. Jesus died on a cross almost 2,000 years ago to make that so. His crucifixion is an historical truth. But when he was nailed to that cross, all our sins were nailed there along with him. The blood he shed washed all our sins away. And with it, the punishment those sins should have brought us, but didn't. That's a spiritual truth. And it was why he'd come. It was why even though he was innocent, he didn't call down legions of angels to rescue him from, from that torture and eventual death. He, he didn't dive under a desk to save himself. He, he took our punishment for us, endured it all, even death, in our place, so that by faith in him, we might become children of God. Uh, uh, New creations, the Bible says, in Christ. God raised him from the grave on Easter morning to assure us that the debt we owed God had been paid in full and that the bridge connecting us to God that had been destroyed by sin 
was uh, now rebuilt, and that even death can't separate us from God or the everlasting life that he has in store for us. And so I guess that kind of begs a question that maybe you haven't given much thought to. What would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? That you already had everything you needed to survive? Seriously, how would you walk through life if you had the assurance, a deep abiding assurance, that when it was all said and done, that you'll be safe and satisfied, that no matter how insane the world gets around us, in the middle of it all, there's Jesus with his promise, don't worry, I've got this. He's saying the world, as you know, is going to collapse and crumble, and eventually it's going to end, but don't worry, I've got this. It's a great promise, but still tough to outrun worry, isn't it? You know, from the time we wake up in the morning to the time we toss and turn trying to get to sleep in our beds at night, all the daily troubles and worries of life run around in our heads in what, until what we really should be concerned about, you know, preparing ourselves for Jesus' return as judge, doesn't get so much as honorable mention. Even the end of the world gets shoved into a corner by thoughts of how we're going to pay the rent, the rising cost of our medications, finding job security, uh, health and wellness issues, family concerns and friends in needs. Uh, so much stuff that, that all of a sudden you've got a sleepless night. When you boil it all down, you'll find it's really just about one thing. It all comes down to the right answer uh, to that same question. Can I trust that God is really in charge? And Jesus is saying in our lesson today, you'd better believe it. He gives them three pieces of advice, three points or uh, warnings for people of faith, uh, just like you and I today. So that whatever lies in your future, whatever comes along to shake your foundations, whether it turns out to be a deluge or natural disaster, uh, disease, divorce, downsizing, whatever it is, you'll have put roots down so deep into the bedrock of faith that you'll be able to stand firm. Now, first of all, he warns, don't be fooled. You know, the first century wasn't the only one where believers had to be wary. Jesus warned that there would be increase uh, in those who claimed to have a better gospel who claimed to have a newer gospel, or even that they were the Christ himself that the prophets foretold. And they came, false messiahs, false religions, uh, and cults. And they still exist, and they even thrive in some places today. Paul warned the Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. He knew that they would need to be warned because seems like we've been hardwired by God with the desire to, repl to replace our ultimate uh, trust and hope in something bigger than ourselves. Our hearts are born ready to receive God's free gift of faith. Now, eventually our own experience will convince us that we're not the end-all, be-all of things, right? That we're the ones revolving around the sun, not the other way around. There's always uh, something or someone bigger, someone out there. And that's someone that, that one a uh, true triune God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. Then Jesus said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes and in various places, famines and pestilences. According to a U.S. Geological Survey, there's something like 500,000 detectable earthquakes in the world each year. Uh, 100,000 of these can be felt and 100 of them may be caused damage. Southern California alone has something like 10,000 earthquakes each year. But most of them are so small that they just go unnoticed. But there have always been earthquakes. Just like there's always been wars and rumors of wars. If we ran screaming for the hills every time one nation took a shot at another one, 
or every time the earth shook, there'd be nobody left to turn out the lights. You know, imagine you're alive during the Middle Ages. Talk about your pestilence, right? The Black Death claimed one-third of Europe's population between 1347 and 1350. One out of three people died. One out of three. You know, you think those people didn't think that was the end of the world? Certainly was the end of it as they knew it. It took Europe 150 years to recover. They will lay their hands on you and persecute you, Jesus said. The Christian church would suffer intense persecution from the time of Emperor Nero, about A.D. 54, until Constantine came along as emperor and proclaimed religious tolerance in 313 A.D. Uh, there's a Christian watchdog group uh, around the world called Open Doors. They supply Bibles to new or aspiring believers. They estimate that over 245 million Christians in the world today suffer intimidation, persecution, or even death for their faith. That works out to about one in nine believers. In fact, I was surprised to read that North Korea, where Christianity is actually illegal, um, has been ranked number one as a, one of the top countries of persecution where it's happening, number one for the last 18 years. I had no idea. I would have guessed like maybe India or one of the Muslim countries, but it's not. It's not a problem that was. Persecution is a problem that is. Uh, it's going on, just as it always has, just as Jesus predicted. You know, all the signs Jesus gave his disciples regarding his return have been ongoing, and um, so not much help, really, for those who are, would like to set a date. But they do tell us something. They tell us that it's closer than it ever was before. That's kind of his second point. Be ready. You know, as soon as, and you're ready as you can be, really, as you can ever be, if you're living in faith. That's all you need to know. Finally, he tells them, don't worry. He says, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but by your endurance you will gain your lives. Jesus wanted his disciples to know things were going to get tough. The good news of eternal life by faith in Christ, that the new good news they would have to share, the, the gospel, um, wasn't going to mean a brand new world all at once. Not yet. Uh, their immediate futures would be filled with danger and uncertainties. Our futures are, are filled with uncertainties, aren't they? By the time the siege of Jerusalem had ended in 70 AD and the temple had been destroyed, over a million Jews had lost their lives, either uh, killed in outright battle with uh, Roman uh, General Titus and his army, or by desperate roving gangs in the city, uh, their own people, or in a large case, by starvation. Another 97,000 were taken captive and scattered across the empire where they they allowed them to face death in the arenas for the pleasure of Rome. Our problems are different maybe today, but not really any less pressing. You know, will Social Security runs out before our need does? How close to home will the next terrorist attack be? Or in what school will the next shooter show up? Will the stock market and your retirement fund take a hit if a new administration is elected next year? Or if it's not? Is there a devastating accident in our future? Or an even more devastating doctor's report? See, life seems just as unpredictable today as it was to Jesus' disciples. And still, Jesus says, don't worry, I've overcome the world. That's the point of the lesson. Life is unpredictable, but it's not out of control. God is in charge. Just need to stay focused on Jesus. Each day brings each one of us closer to our forever. But uh, by your faith and your endurance, you'll gain life, eternal life in a perfect world. Jesus says, not a hair of your head will perish. Life will go on. All worldly loss is just temporary anyway. 
there, there are happy reunions in heaven. A restoration of all things will happen at the resurrection. God's power is greater than any power that would forever crush us. And when life does seem crushing, God is right there in the middle of it with us. Uh, Never will I forsake you, he says. He's already overcome this world on Calvary where Satan really suffered his ultimate defeat. The empty tomb on Easter morning is God's guarantee of that promise that there is life after this life. This world isn't all there is. That's what Jesus was trying to get across to his disciples. What he's saying is that even though sometimes life gets tough, and it will, ultimately we're going to emerge victorious. No matter what life hands us in this world, we have a perfect life waiting just in the next. We're all in God's hands. He's in our past, our present, and he's waiting in our everlasting future. He won't let us fall. There's one last thing Jesus mentions to remember today. Our struggles in this broken world are like platforms. Uh, Listen to what he says in verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. How much better will we be able to navigate this world's catastrophes, our own life's catastrophes, once we realize that each time we're singed by life's fires, we have an opportunity to show those without hope that despite our circumstances, there's always a reason to hope. That you don't have to worry about what the future holds, as long as you know who holds the future. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen.